Thank you for joining us today for another episode of the Journal of Neurophysiology's podcast series. Today, we'll be discussing the article titled, Muscle Sympathetic Single Unit Responses During Rhythmic Hand Grip Exercise and Isocapnic Hypoxia in Males, The Role of Sympathoexcitation Magnitude. Joining us today are Editor-in-Chief, Professor Nina Ramirez, and author, Dr. Philip Miller. So let's get started. Hi, Nino. Thank you very much, Jamie. And thank you so much, Phil, for uh, participating in our podcast series. Now, your title is very heroic, but I think your, your single unit recordings are even more heroic, and they explore the specificity of sympathetic control. And, you know, when we teach about sympathetic control, you know, we teach about the flight and fight response. And one might get the impression that the sympathetic system simply floods our entire body with norepinephrine to prepare for fighting. But what most are not so aware is the specificity with which the sympathetic nervous system differentially controls different organs and specific muscles in a very timely manner. So the sympathetic system is continuously active like an orchestra that just changes its complex melody in a state-dependent manner on demand in which different instruments turn on and off to carry on the music. Now, your previous study demonstrated beautifully how single units and action potential clusters are differentially activated and inhibited in response to different stressors. And in this study, you went one step further to study also the regulatory mechanism governing this differential control. Now, but before we go into all the details, why don't we start with your experimental approach? And so my question first is, what is microneurography and the difference between multi and single unit recordings? Phil, go ahead, please. Many thanks, Nino, and I appreciate the invitation to speak about our research here today. So microneurography is a technique that allows us to gain insight directly into the activity of the sympathetic nervous system. It has been around for over 50 years and involves the insertion of a tungsten microelectrode directly into a superficial peripheral nerve. We know that we can use this tungsten microelectrode to assess the activity of C fibers, postganglionic sympathetic outflow or single units that are directed towards targets in skeletal muscle, as well as towards the skin. My lab is interested in cardiovascular control, so we focus more specifically on muscle sympathetic nerve activity as the primary target. In the last 30 years, what we've begun to appreciate is that there is more critical information in this muscle sympathetic nerve signal than just what we were initially receiving by assessing a multi-fiber preparation or a multi-unit preparation. And that is that we can use higher impedance microelectrodes to try to decrease the field receptive area and that when we pair that with analytical techniques to help match the shape of these action potential waveforms, that we are able to try to identify as close to possible in a human model, what we define as single units or at minimum, very small number of units that represent action potential clusters. And it's really been in the last 10 to 15 years that we've used this analysis 
to try to understand almost the language of which the sympathetic nervous system communicates with. And Kevin Shoemaker's group has, has really put this idea forward about understanding the language of sympathetic activation. And we've been interested as well in a kind of a parallel sense of trying to understand how by assessing sympathetic outflow at a deeper level, may we gain understanding of the central organization of the sympathetic nervous system. Because as you said in your introduction, it is highly complex and much uh, a much broader understanding than we initially thought as the fight or flight response. And so I try to teach my students that you know, we initially started as fight or flight, as a whole body response. We moved to, with the advent of microneurography, to understanding that it could be differentiated to different organs. And now looking at the action potential analyses, they were starting to see the potential for differential regulation, even within one uh, organ output. Phil, that's so exciting because, you know, it really reminds me how we go about in the central nervous system where we use multi-array or now the neuropixel recordings and spike sorting to really figure out how the populations, you know, work together at the single cell level. And I mean, that's the beauty that it's not only in the CNS, but also in the PNS. And so that, that made it very fascinating, these parallels. Now, in your study, you compare two different sympathoexcitatory stressors rhythmic hand grip exercise and also isocapnic hypoxia. So why did you pick these two particular stressors? That's a good question. So the reason that we chose both of these is that they are well-established stressors in the literature. So we chose, um, we chose rhythmic hand grip and isocapnic hypoxia because both of them have consistent literature for activating the sympathetic nervous system across multiple populations. And I would say we used rhythmic hand grip specifically because as a scientist, we often don't believe the findings that we see and we wanna replicate them over and over again. And so now we have done, this is our second study using rhythmic hand grip and we're able to confirm some of our original results that again, provide us more confidence in some of our conclusions. Wonderful. So and now in your study, you restrict everything to the males. So what was the rationale for that? Yeah, so this is a really good point and obviously a timely discussion as we understand the important roles of sex differences in, in cardiovascular control or other areas of physiology. And I would say that this is really done simply because that this work was collected in a collaborative manner in the laboratory of Dr. Glenn Foster at the University of British Columbia. And my two students that led this paper, uh, now Dr. Anthony Incognito and Dr. Andre Teixeira, both went to the University of British Columbia and had only about three weeks of time to collect data for this study. And in my lab currently, what we would do is standardize any female participant to a distinct phase of their menstrual cycle. And we just didn't feel like we were able to do that in the three week time window. And because of that, we didn't want to introduce the possibility that we could have uh, influences of circulating sex hormones 
on some of these outcomes because we we do not yet know how they may affect say this this aspect of differential control thanks phil so i look really forward to to the follow-up study now looking at at females which is of course very very interesting as you say now one of the major conclusions is that your multi-unit sympathetic excitation across different stresses is mediated partially by distinct single unit subpopulations. Now, for example, in your study, you observed that different stressors can elicit actually parallel simultaneous influences over the multi-unit muscle sympathetic nerve activity, the MSNA. And hence, so what do you think is the physiological relevance for that and the advantage specifically for differential parallel and simultaneous responses? This is a really good question. And I think to answer it, you have to go back to the beginning a little bit. And so to, to start this question, this really began during my postdoctoral fellowship in the lab of Dr. John Flores at the University of Toronto. And at that time, we were trying to use single unit muscle sympathetic nerve activity recordings to understand the role of a potential excitatory reflex uh, in the heart in patients with heart failure. And so we had a cardiologist from Japan, Dr. Hiseyoshi Murai, that came over and was teaching us how to do the single unit technique and helping us complete this work. And during that time, we found that, you know, there was this small population of single units that seemed to behave what we initially labeled as paradoxically. So we had a sympathoexcitatory stress, but some of these single units seem to either not respond or to actually have reductions, de-recruitment. And so that was great. We went on to show that there was clinical differences in a heart failure patient and suggested that that was due to this atrial-specific positive feedback afferent mechanism. When I moved to the University of Guelph to start my faculty position, the, one of the first studies we wanted to do was to see if those responses were comparable in a young, healthy population. And so we replicated some of that original work using lower body negative pressure to change central venous pressure and filling pressure. And to our surprise, a little bit, we saw the exact same proportions of these paradoxical fibers or single units. And so then we began to think, maybe this isn't paradoxical. Maybe this is normal. Maybe there is actually this pool of, of sympathetic single units that are de-recruited in response to these stressors. And so that's what's kind of led us down the line. And now we've been assessing the effects of different stressors and how they may play a role. And what we've seen is that lower body negative pressure seems to induce a slightly smaller proportion of these de-recruited single units or action potentials in comparison to rhythmic hand grip exercise. And so our thinking on what the importance of this has really start, sort of evolved over the years. And we now think of it as at the low mild stress level, that this is really probably related to potentially greater flexibility in our ability to respond to a stress 
by incorporating the feedback from multiple afferent populations. So that we have these pools of sympathetic neurons, uh, in this case, sympathetic premotor neurons that are being activated and that the inputs or the connections to those are being affected by the afferents that we are activating in our stressors and that the differences in the connectivity of those can then influence, uh, obviously, the end output. Phil, again, this is so interesting because when we look at the respiratory network, also using multi-unit recordings from the central nervous system, we have also, you know, the activation and deactivation of neurons. Like when you go into hypoxia, some neurons shut down, other neurons get activated when you go into opiates and get a depression. It's also not that just neurons get deactivated, but, you know, some get activated. So it really seems that, you know, the inhibition and then activation of sympathetic unit parallels this kind of CNS response. It's really fascinating. Now, I think you, you started to talk about this, but what determines the differential activation? Is it determined by different inputs to these neurons or different outputs? And is it perhaps a development that, that determines so those are great questions. And, you know, your point about respiratory neuron activation or deactivation during hypoxia is really some of the impetus for our work. So that when you go back and look through in terms of work from Jerry DeBono, in terms of renal sympathetic activation, that in single unit recordings in these animal preparations, that there are clearly identifiable fibers which respond differently to, to stimuli that are being applied. And so what we're trying to do is extend this parallel now to humans, where obviously we're not able to complete, you know, true neurophysiological single unit or fiber preparations and recordings and, and try to see how those results can then apply because you're right. In animal preparations, the single unit responses can be quite heterogeneous to the same kind of input. At this point in time, uh, we really think that it's related to the afferent reflex that is driving this de-recruitment. And that it's really important to note that initially, when we first started this work, we thought that there might be these pools of sympathetic fibers or single units that respond very specifically to an afferent reflex. And so we thought that we could test them during any stress and they might not be activated or turned on or de-recruited. And that if we even increased the level of that stressor, that they would still not be turned on because it would really be an, an afferent specific efferent response. So a really linking between those two connections. But that's not really what we've seen. So what we've seen with our data is that the ability to detect these different proportions tends to be highly related to the level of sympathoexcitation. So as we increase sympathetic ac activity, so we increase the level of the stress that every fiber that we've detected has the capacity to become activated. And so it really talks about the, the, the central connections that are going on in terms of how these afferents 
regulate the sympathetic premotor neuron pools that exist in the central nervous system. And we really think it's, it's about the strength of that connection and how, while there is overlap between those afferent projections into say the NTS, that there is also some distinction and that allows for differences in the activation thresholds of some of these neuron pools. Because what's important to remember about microneurography is that it's actually quite random, right? We, we don't get to select which fibers that we're looking at. What we're actually doing is randomly inserting an electrode into a peripheral nerve and trying to position that tip in proximity to some of these postganglionic sympathetic fibers. And I'll make a plug here, you know, if you don't mind, that one of my one of my PhD students, Jordan Lee, often tells participants who come into the lab to undergo microneurography. He says it's like finding a needle in a haystack with another needle. So <laughs> that is that is often how we describe it because of that we can't be sure you know which fibers were located to and what obviously neuron pools that those are connected with and we don't have the ability to do you know the tracer labeled studies to to find those locations beautiful you know phil i i can so relate to this i mean i ultimately became a neuroscientist because it's this unpredictability you know you stick your electrode in the in the brain and you don't know what you get and often you get something that you did not expect and that keeps it exciting and uh, it's also beautiful I mean, what you can do in the periphery i mean it's non-invasive in a way which we cannot do in the cns so so i found it really cool how you can get insights and how really the brain controls in a very differential manner sympathetic drive now uh, you talk a little bit about uh, blood pressure also uh, do you find similarly differential control and are these different units compared to let's say those that, that drive the muscles are there different characteristics yeah so in, in this study we obviously found different levels of blood pressure in between our two stressors and that's really just simply a reflection of the stimuli that we provided so providing the isocapnic hypoxia stimuli activates the the peripheral chemoreceptors to increase sympathetic activity, but at the same at the same time induces systemic vasodilation. So we really see a, a really no change or a small change in, in blood pressure. When we're talking about our exercise stimuli, well, then we have activation of central command and the exercise presser reflex. And then we see a progressive rise in pressure that is done functionally to help provide blood flow to the active muscle to support its its metabolic demands so in this study i don't think the blood pressure findings directly relate to the responses in terms of proportions we have done a study that's looked at single unit control by the arterial barrier reflex in individuals that had normal blood pressure and slightly elevated or pre-hypertensive blood pressure levels. And in those individuals, we did find some evidence that the strength of the relationships between blood pressure as an input 
and the single unit responses as an output were weaker in the individuals with hypertension and that their operating range so the range in which the the bare reflex is linearly controlling sympathetic activity was actually much narrower so we thought that this could be indications of as these were fairly young unmedicated hypertensives that this could be the beginning of disturbances related to sympathetic control they were just simply not able to detect in the multi-unit in the multi-unit preparations very cool because i think you addressed already a question i wanted to ask next which is you know is this highly differential response preserved in hypertension and and how does this relate to changes in the discharge patterns you know for example tonic versus burst firing and you talked about weaker responses can you get an insight into that? Sure. So we don't have any data in hypertension patients specifically. We have that data with the pre-hypertensives and they have elevated MSNA. And as a result of that, their underlying single unit responses are increased. I would think to investigate that, our method is probably actually not the best for that. So to, to really look at that, it's probably looking at the analysis program that Kevin Shoemaker's group uses in which they are trying to create action potential wavelet clusters to survey at the same time all of the active action potentials or fibers in a nerve preparation. In our model, we are trying to very, very selectively follow the activity of a very small number. And so we always have this this concern or limitation about whether our small population that we're investigating is indicative of the larger pool of neurons that's that's clearly active during that phase. So that would be kind of point one. Point two would be, we do have work from when I was in John Flores's lab that disease can modify these responses. And in that work, we were assessing patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And what we found was that in response to lower body negative pressure, so a stimuli that would reduce filling pressure and increase sympathetic activity, that this proportion of de-recruited single units was the same between age-matched healthy controls. But when we gave them lower body positive pressure to load those cardiopulmonary receptors, that is when we saw the heart failure patients actually had a much higher percentage of these uh, fibers that had opposite or paradoxical responses. So with lower body positive pressure, we would expect some inhibition of sympathetic activity. And in the heart failure group, what we actually saw was activation. And so for sure, that's what we think is the real utility of this is we can use the multi-unit preparation to say, you know, what is the overall response? But sometimes that overall response is being, is obviously being determined by the underlying single units. And if you have two populations or pools going in opposite directions, that they can essentially cancel each other out. And so by trying to understand the somewhat of the proportions of these activated 
single units, they, we can gain some greater insight into the mechanisms responsible for autonomic disturbances with cardiovascular disease states. Wonderful. So, so really, this tells us that if we think about dysautonomia in general, you know, that probably every dysautonomia disorder, being let's say rat syndrome or congenital heart disease or even epilepsy or so, might have different kind of activation patterns and different responses to stressors. And uh, I think unraveling this will be very, very important. Uh, do we know how, how drugs affect this activation? You know, are they just dampen it or, or is it also a differential response that is difficult to predict? Yeah, I would say we don't have any, any knowledge of that. We don't have any, any idea we had done. Uh, there is some work showing that uh, lipophilic statins are able to centrally reduce sympathetic outflow as determined by multi-unit recordings. And whether that changes you know, these proportions of activated single units or de-recruited single units is, is really unclear. What my laboratory is, is interested in determining is, is really what are the mechanisms responsible for the inter-individual variability we see in stress responses. So, you know, when we give people the exact same challenge, why do we see such a very wide range of responses to that? And this is what we've somewhat gone down this idea of looking at the single unit responses to determine if we can begin to identify alterations in specific afferent pathways that are contributing to this response. Interesting. So again, it's very similar to, to the neural control of breathing where, you know, you can change your frequency, you can change your tidal volume and, and there's a lot of variability between individuals. So how variable or stable is now the activation pattern in a given individual, you know, from day to day, I can assume you can have maybe these recordings for a long time or several days. I don't know. Yeah, so, so that's a good question. So the recordings that we do generally kind of peak at maybe two to three hours. Um, they, you know, people will get uncomfortable and they'll need to use the washroom. And then, you know, bladder distension increases sympathetic activity. And so, you know, we have a number of obviously confounding factors there. But in our in our hands when we've done this work and we invite the same people to come back, the proportions are relatively well-preserved. So that is the proportions of these de-recruited to activated uh, single units. And what I would also say is that we've now done multiple studies where we're assessing some of them the same, some of them different participants. And what we still see is that the proportions remain relatively consistent uh, across time. So when we take that information, we pair it with some of the reproducibility statistics in terms of just single unit activity and multi-unit activity, that we feel quite confident in the fact that the proportions stay relatively comparable over time. It is important to note that we would we're not able to test the exact same fibers. So we can't, we can't ensure that they are exactly the same. If we were to repeat a stress, say, say after a period of time and redo it, 
you know, what we see is that the proportions again stay relatively consistent, but that the individual units that we've identified might change their pattern. And so to me, that just reflects that you have a pool of these neurons that then can be activated and which neuron is activated specifically is, is, is not always the same in every case within that pool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, let's go back to the neural control. Like this complex orchestration must be generated somewhere in the, in the brain. And you, you talked already, you have these sensory regions like the NTS. You have probably output regions in the ventral lateral medulla. But these areas are probably not sufficient to explain this highly differential and complex response. And I know from work done by Vaughn Maysfield that he talks about the sympathetic connectome in the cortex. So what do we know about it? And, and, and what do we not know? That's a very loaded question. So, so I, I think when we look back at our data, clearly we have not done those fMRI studies like Vaughn has done that, that nicely, nicely establishes some of this, this human brain connections. But when we look back at the animal literature and try to fit our data within that, it becomes clear that we have these afferent projections that are connecting at, in the NTS and that these can be organized in a topographical manner related to the afferent pathway. And while there is connections of those, that there is some, and I, I said this before, that there is some distinction, that there is some that have their own kind of uh, field areas for, for synapsing. And we think it is, it's in this connection that then projects to these different pools that we already know the RVLM, the sympathetic premotor neuron pools exist in an organ specific manner, but how those afferents connect with those pools, I think is kind of the, the next step. And clearly that's not a step that, that my group would be taking but that we have greater understanding in, you know, the role in terms of the cortex and other and other areas is is fascinating. So we think about conditions like different emotional states and how that can influence our sympathetic responses. And if we go back to, and this is you know work done by by Vaughn Maysfield and Jason Carter and we look at responses to mental stress or pain, what we can see is that they're highly heterogeneous between individuals and differential. So some people have increases, some people have decreases, but they're reproducible. And so there are almost these, these kind of phenotypes that exist uh, within those responses. And now it's kind of the next the next layer or level to understand what is what is dictating those and how the interaction of these reflexes because oftentimes we're going to be getting simultaneous feedback from peripheral afferent sensors that are going to be connecting with that central projections and so understanding how those 
reflexes interact, I think is, is really a key future step because we've spent a lot of time studying reflexes in isolation. And that's not really how, you know, how the body reacts to these stressors that we really need this integrative approach to understanding how they can potentially interact to really separate out what they're doing. Fascinating. And, and you know, and there's one level in addition that adds to complexity in your sympathetic ganglia and the internal circuitry and neuromodulation in this control. So, so how does that play in a role in, in, in your studies, for example? So obviously we don't have, we don't have any data at present to address this, but Kevin Shoemaker and Michael Joyner had a paper that looked at applying trimethophan, uh, a ganglionic blocker, and assessing these action potential uh, de-recruitment patterns. And so what they clearly showed is that the uh, paravertebral ganglia is at least partially involved in this kind of orderly de-recruitment in which they saw that it was what we call the largest sympathetic fibers. So those with the greatest amplitude in our action potential analyses that were de-recruited first and that they actually had an, you know, almost an activation of some of the smaller action potential clusters and then this group of action potentials that persisted even under the application of ganglionic blockade. So uh, I think it, it's really complex in terms of trying to tease these apart. What I would say my belief is, is that the ganglia can determine the, the recruitment, um, but doesn't probably determine the directionality of those responses. That's probably supraspinal influences that are determining that. And so it's, it's really then about the recruitment discharge patterns that the ganglia is influencing. That, that is very helpful, what you just said. And, and uh, hey, but this is still only half of the complexity that we're discussing, because now we, we have to think about the parasympathetic system and uh, is it as specific and differentiated as a sympathetic control and 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 sorry to bombard you with this but what do you think uh, are the key differences in these two control systems and they have to work together and must somehow be integrated in a physiological response at the same time so that's a, a real another really great and uh, i think a difficult question to answer so we know very recently that Vaughn Macefield's group actually did the first human intraneural recording of the vagus nerve, which was, which was quite exciting. But what was shown is that the response patterns are clearly very different and heterogeneous than what we get in our muscle sympathetic fibers. So our muscle sympathetic fibers all experience very rhythmic bursts of activity that align with uh, the cardiac cycle related to arterial bare reflex control. And that was not apparent in all of the, all of the uh, preparations that, that they examined in that study. So I, I do think there is going to be critical differences. And I think first, first and foremost, that is because it's difficult for us to assess that in humans. I think that another important 
point is that while we think of these systems as working together, like the, the yin and the yang uh, of cardiovascular control, we also want to remember that there can be quite a few examples where they are, where they are differentially controlled. And so the first, the most obvious example of this is in heart failure or cardiovascular disease states where we see very low arterial bare reflex sensitivity or control of heart rate, which is a measure of reflex parasympathetic control, while sympathetic bare reflex sensitivity is, is largely preserved in those, in those patients. So I think there are key questions. I, I think I've danced around your question sufficiently here, but I think there are, are key questions that remain to be answered in comparing the systems. But I think it is important to acknowledge that while the systems are working together, there are also times and conditions that we see that they are actually being independently operated and that even in healthy individuals, say the sensitivity of bare reflex control of heart rate and peripheral sympathetic activity are largely unrelated from each other. Interesting. But what you're saying is basically we're just starting to understand autonomic control, <laughs> kind of. So along these lines, you know, what are the next steps from here for you and your lab, for example? So I think the next steps for us are are twofold. The first is that we now need to investigate not stressors in isolation. We now need to start to apply these concurrently. So in this present paper, we didn't investigate what happens if you have isocapnic hypoxia while doing the rhythmic hand grip. And part of this goes back to the work that we did in John Flores's lab to really determine if this is an afferent reflex or if this is, say, a peripheral venous distension uh, reflex. And are we able to then combine stressors together to see how we can modify these, these single unit response patterns? The second step is that we need to understand how these patterns perhaps are changed during disease states. So looking at patients with established hypertension or other cardiovascular states that are known to have increased resting sympathetic activity is really our next kind of avenue to move this data towards. So we can begin to understand or try to gain insight into how those autonomic disturbances occur so that we may then direct you know, therapies or lifestyle interventions to, to better, to better control or counteract those, those effects. Great. There are lots of questions. And I have also another question that I, I, I wanted to ask you is the age, you know, like, what do we know about, you know, aging and, and all the people with regards to this control? So that's a great question. So we have, um, it's not within the same study, but data between two different studies that use the same model, the lower body negative pressure. And when we did that compared in a young university aged cohort to the older cohort, we saw that the proportions were identical. So they actually had the same proportions in terms of their responses. 
And that may not be as surprising because the responses in terms of their overall multi-unit sympathetic activation was largely similar as well. And so that role of sympathoexcitation seems to be kind of that predominant driving factor in being able to detect these, these different proportions of activated and de-recruited or non-responsive single units. Interesting. You probably tested healthy old uh, Canadians <laughs> that grew up being active. But it will be interesting to see like these old couch potatoes, how, how the system deteriorates. But interesting questions. Now, Phil, what are the important take-home messages you wanted listeners to remember from your study? I think the first and foremost is just to appreciate the complexity of sympathetic nervous system regulation and activity. So, you know, when using a multi-unit recording, we sometimes don't gain that appreciation, but by, by looking at the action potential clusters or single unit responses, we can see that there is an immense capacity for how we activate the sympathetic nervous system, whether that is in a, a rate coding manner or whether that is in the recruitment of new single units or fibers, to sustain the overall activation. In terms of our study specifically, I think our data convincingly would now lead us to believe that there isn't these afferent efferent linked pools. And so what we're now talking about is related to the strength of the connectivity between these specific afferents and the sympathetic premotor neuron pools, and that the degree of that connectivity is going to lead to very uh, heterogeneous uh, activation thresholds. And that we have these different thresholds for activation that, that then once hit, turn on, and that can occur in a very, uh, very predictable or consistent manner between different stressors at the same level of, of sympathetic activation. Phil, thank you so much. I learned so much and uh, it's very clear to me that the peripheral nervous system is not a little bit less complex than the central nervous system. They're the same. And maybe that shouldn't be surprising. And, and of course, you know, we cannot go without this. We cannot just flat our nervous system or your brain or your body with norepinephrine. It has to be very differentiated. So it was a great talking to you and I learned so much and I hope the listener also learned a lot and we look forward to your next uh, papers in journal neurophysiology. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. This podcast was brought to you by the Journal of Neurophysiology and produced by me, Jamie Jones. If you would like to hear our latest episodes, please visit the Journal of Neurophysiology's homepage.